Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is pretty easy to find. It is the last book in the Bible. We're going to start in uh, verse 8. If you are uh, new with us this morning, or if you have been out for a little bit, or maybe just feeling a little forgetful today, um, we've been walking through uh, Revelation, and we'll be in it for a little while. Um, In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to his church, and the main thing he tells them is that you must endure, you must conquer. Um, There are two things you have to conquer. You have to conquer the the world that opposes your faith uh, through living a sacrificial life submitted to God. You have to conquer the evil within you. Um, And in this particular section we're in, these letters to the churches, Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to seven historical churches. Uh, we covered this last week a little bit, but these aren't uh, these aren't prophecies of the of church history. These are actual, real places in first century um, where Jesus is, Jesus speaks to these particular churches, and what he speaks to most of these churches, uh, he evaluates where they really are spiritually. Um, but the two churches we're going to see this morning, uh, he focuses almost exclusively on the circumstances of these two churches. So what we're going to see in Revelation 2, uh, verses 8 to uh, 17, is that Jesus is not only concerned with how well or poorly we're doing. He's very much concerned with our struggles and our circumstances. And he's going to speak some very encouraging words. So let's hear the scriptures uh, from Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 and following. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you, you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you know us, and that your knowledge of us includes a knowledge of our pain and of our circumstances and of the pressures uh, we face 
We ask now that knowledge would be a, a comfort and that it would minister to us, um, that you would make your presence known in this place through the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. The worst part about Burmese prison were the sleeping arrangements. You see, the, uh, your prison guard's favorite thing to do were to tie your feet together and hang you upside down by your feet while you slept at night, just so that your shoulders and head laid on the ground in the most uncomfortable position possible with your arms tied behind your back, primarily so that the spiders and scorpions who came out at night in the jungle could crawl on you. That's not the only bad part about Burmese prison. The guard's other favorite thing to do is to beat the living daylights out of you. You are basically starving. You only get food if your sick, pregnant wife can bribe the prison guards and share with you some of her meager supplies. You see her wasting away as the days drag on. You have no idea if you ever get out. There is no just cause for you to be in prison. You don't have a lawyer. They don't do court date in this country. You are there at the whim of a dictator who does not care about you or God. Welcome to Following Jesus to the Nations. You are Adoniram Judson, the uh, first missionary from America to cross the Atlantic and minister in Southeast Asia. And this, in a prison, hanging upside down, watching your wife slowly suffer and die, is where following Jesus has led you. Or maybe left you might feel like the better word, right? That's the, that's the question in every human heart, right? When you see suffering like that, or maybe even experience just a glimpse of it, the question is, if God loves me, if he protects me, is he, is he leading me here, or has he just left me here? Can, does, can God even see how terrible? Surely if he could see how terrible this was, he would help where our hearts go when we suffer. We've never suffered like Adoniram Judson. I hope none of us ever do. Um, in fact, I think it's hard for us to even conceive of what that would be like. But you know exactly what it's like when things are bad, when they're not going your way, when you've had a rough week or someone in your life dies or gets sick or things, or when you try to obey Jesus and things go worse to you, right? You know what it's like to have that question. You know, does he, does he really see this? Is he really good in this? I think the worst things are not circumstantial trials, but those trials inside. Old Christians called these the dark nights of the soul, right? When everything outside our lives appears okay. You know, things are pretty normal, but inside we're alone and miserable. Does Jesus even see? And if he does, why won't he help? If there were any churches in history who had the right to ask a question like that, does Jesus see me? Does he see these circumstances? Does he see my pain? It was the churches of Smyrna and Pergamum. They are persecuted in ways which you and I can't really imagine. Uh, one church has already had one of their church members killed. One church is about to have an entire portion of their congregation probably killed. Um, and what we're going to see this morning is perhaps the most comforting truth in Revelation we've seen so far, and that is that Jesus sees his suffering people. He sees their pain. 
He's present in it. He's able to help. First, we'll see that that Jesus does, in fact, see. Second, we'll see what Jesus sees. That'll be a little different than what we see. And third, we'll learn how to live in light of what Jesus sees. So, first, see that Jesus, in fact, sees us. Look at verse 9. Uh, sorry, back up for a second. If, uh, if you read Revelation 2 and 3, uh, every letter to the churches uh, besides these two letters starts with the phrase, I know your works, which means that I know where you really are spiritually, right? Uh, but, but for Smyrna and Pergamum, he starts the letters off differently. For Smyrna, he says, I, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know your sufferings. Um. In verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know your circumstances. I know the pressures in your life. So let's just look at these two things really quickly. So first, Jesus sees your sufferings. Smyrna, they're in tribulation. They're poor. They're under persecution. Jesus says, I see this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not unaware. I see it. Um, and you, you see lots of things in this passage about the synagogue of Satan and their slander and all that kind of stuff. Let me just back up for a second and kind of explain to you what this looked like in first century Rome. Uh, we, you probably have heard that in the early church in the Roman Empire was persecuted. And you might have in your mind uh, something like North Korea, where there's this evil government that's hunting down Christians. That's not really what it was like. Uh, Roman officials back in the first century, they just kind of wanted to do their thing and make money and kind of grow up the ranks. Okay? They, and the official policy of Rome was, you know, if you didn't worship the gods or worship the emperor, we'll kill you. Right? But if nobody got brought to them, they didn't want to deal with it. It's kind of bad for business. Uh, maybe, maybe you're familiar with the stories of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels. Notice how Pilate, the person who executed Jesus, or who had him executed, didn't really want to do it. He was kind of forced into it uh, by the Jews. Um, that's what's happening in Smyrna. Uh, there are uh, Jewish people here um, whom Jesus says actually are a synagogue of the evil one because of what they're doing. Um, they are either jealous of these Christians or trying to protect themselves. I'm not sure what's going on, but what they're doing is they're dragging Christians before the authorities and basically forcing the Roman authorities to take action. Um, so just imagine, okay, imagine that you live in a land where it's illegal to be a Christian officially. You've lost your job because of you're a Christian, and uh, you've come to worship this morning hungry. I'm not talking about I miss breakfast hungry, like a little rumbling or something. I'm talking about like, it's been two days since I've eaten. And I don't know where my next meal is coming from, okay? Last week at church, all right, you got here, we started singing songs, the police broke down the door and drugged three or four guys away. We haven't seen them since or heard from them, okay? How are you feeling this morning, all right? You excited for me to open the scriptures? Um, how's your heart? Does Jesus see you? Or maybe uh, we, we live in a land where this kind of persecution is not really imaginable. We can't even conceive of it really. But, but what about you when you get laid off from your job, even if it's not because of your faith, or when you get turned down for a second date, or when you wake up feeling lonely for no reason or hopeless? Jesus sees. He sees you. He knows. He also knows your circumstances. Uh, verse 13, I, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Uh, this idea of Satan's throne probably communicates that Pergamum, for some reason or another, was the center of uh, demonic power or evil power. 
Um, there was a very powerful uh, cult of the emperor in ancient Pergamum, uh, which is basically they were a group of people who said that you had to worship the Roman emperor as if he were a god, or else we will find you out and kill you. Um, and uh, the environment of Pergamum was so filled with that uh, that it was a very oppressive place. You know, we've had, uh, we had Kelly Cooper, uh, who's an IMB missionary, who East Cooper sent, uh, and she's in Thailand right now, and she shared with us in here about six months ago. But one thing I remember her sharing was that when you walk the streets of Thailand and you see what's going on, uh, you, can just, you just feel like almost physically oppressed by the spiritual darkness. Um, maybe you guys have uh, not experienced that, but, but you've all walked outside on a really hot, humid Charleston day, right, with that terrible combination of heat and humidity, and you feel, you feel like the air is smothering you, like it's like I'm drowning, okay? That is what Pergamon was like spiritually. It's a spiritually smothering environment, so smothering this church in Pergamum has even seen one of their own killed. This is verse, end uh, verse 13. The days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Uh, just by the way, really quickly, uh, there's a really great Christian fiction book called The Lost Letters of Pergamum. And what they do is they, they give a uh, fictional but very realistic account of um, what Antipas's conversion would have looked like. Uh, and it gets this really cool picture of first century church. If you're interested in what life was like in the ancient church, it help you give a little bit of context to Revelation, uh, I'd encourage you to read it. But uh, church history, legend has it that Antipas was roasted alive in the carcass of a bull. That's how savage the Romans were, okay? But just imagine, okay, last week, the most solid believer in this room gets taken from us and executed publicly and all the scoffers in Mount Pleasant come out and they say, Ha, Christian, where's your God now? All right? How you doing? Um, has Jesus left you? No, he sees, he knows better than you the oppressiveness of your environment. Now listen, here's the thing. We're not in Pergamum, thank the Lord, okay? But if Jesus sees what life is like in Pergamum, he sees what life is like in Mount Pleasant. Right? He sees he understands the pressures of your environment. He knows what it's like to go home and be alone and be tempted. Right? He knows what it's like to have a workplace that is hostile towards your beliefs. He understands what it's like to have materialism, right? A desire to be comfortable, right? To be the air you breathe. He understands that. Finally, uh, Jesus sees your temptation to cave to the pressure. Uh, notice here in verse 14, I have a few things against you, this church in Pergamum. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So it's kind of a complicated image here, but uh, in the book of Numbers, there's a story about a prophet Balaam, and he's hired by a wicked king named Balak, uh, Balak sorry, uh, to... Um, prophesied terrible things over the people of Israel who were God's people in the Old Testament. Anyways, he can't, and so uh, Balaam finally gives Balak this advice. He says, the only way you're going to defeat Israel in battle is if you can get them to commit idolatry. So here's what you should do. You should, you should send some idols down. You should send some women down and tempt them to commit sexual immorality and idolatry. And uh, it actually worked. 
Um, we see that in the book of Numbers that Balaam's error worked. But um, we've seen uh, in other books or other, uh, other letters in Revelation that this temptation, this, uh, this teaching, um, if you notice, look, look, at, uh, look down at uh, Thyatira. This is, uh, um, sorry, verse 20 to the church in Thyatira. We looked at this last week. Um, there was a woman, Jezebel, in their midst who calls herself a prophetess and teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. So apparently what's going on is that there's this same false teaching floating around the churches. And what Jesus is doing is he is he's describing it in different ways. But what's the false teaching? It was a false teaching um, that sought to accommodate Christianity to Roman culture. It said to, it said to the Christians, hey, listen, listen. Unless we eat food sacrificed to idols and unless we're sexually immoral, they're going to persecute and kill us. So to protect ourselves... To keep things okay in here, what we're going to do is we're just going to do it a little bit, right? We're going to sacrifice, uh, we're going to sacrifice food to the emperor. We're going to worship him, but we're going to know in our hearts that we're not doing that for real, right? We're going to just do a little bit of immorality, not a bunch, but just a little bit. They were uh, they were trying to keep Christians safe, and in doing so, they were losing Jesus. So um, we may not be tempted to sacrifice food offered to idols. Many of us are probably tempted towards sexual immorality of some kind. But really, this kind of heresy is the kind that says, hey, listen, you can love Jesus and have the comfort and pleasure and possessions you want. That's, 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 the, that's the teaching of Balaam in our church, in, in our culture, right? You can have Jesus and you can have the American dream. And you guys certainly feel the pressure of that. So... In application, just really briefly, see that Jesus really does see you. And he doesn't just see you in that sense that a, that a judge with his laws sees someone who's broken them. He sees you as a person in the middle of your sufferings and trials and your circumstances. He understands. He gets what it's like. Um, wherever you are, Christ sees you. He's with you to help you. I think uh, one of the most frustrating things is to have something you feel like you can't share with anyone, right? Um, or even uh, to share with someone something going on and it's clear they just don't get it, right? Um, and some of you guys have experienced, and maybe the opposite, how, how you're really going through something and you tell somebody else and all of a sudden the weight is lifted. You can breathe a little bit. And uh, I think the point of Jesus knowing and seeing is that he is that person. He really gets it. He really, he really can hear. He understands. In fact, have you ever wondered, you know, half of the Psalms in the Bible are people telling God about stuff he already knows about? Psalms of lament, right? Truly, if God's omniscient, if he knows all things, he knows, right, that bad things are going on in David's life. Why does David spend all this time telling God about it? Because God wants you to come to him, Right? He, he wants you to pour out your heart to him. He sees you. And in fact, uh, as the scriptures tell us, the reason Jesus can see you and where he can really say, I know what this is like, is because Jesus became a man. The God of the universe, right? The one who's risen here and reigning, right? He became a man just like you. He had a fully human nature. He walked through life. 
He felt oppressed. He felt grief. He had sorrow. He was lonely. In fact, the scriptures describe Jesus as a man well acquainted with grief. He's felt the pressure to cave. He uh, was so nervous about experiencing the cross that he sweat blood in Gethsemane. He understands what it's like. He can sympathize with you. He understands what it's like to be tempted. And not only does he understand and know you, wants to see you, he has given you a foundation in the gospel to suffer with hope, to suffer well. You know, one of the worst things about suffering is that oftentimes suffering causes us to sin. Something bad happens, I'm mad at God, right? Something bad happens, I'm just, I'm giving up. I'm just going to stop being obedient, right? And the gospel tells, tells us that when you trust in Jesus, when you look to him, when you look to what he did, you are right with God once and forever. You look, all you do is trust. You just come and receive the gift. And with that gift, with that righteousness, you can suffer with hope. One of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia, I probably reference it once every six months. I need to make sure I don't tell the story too much. But anyways, there's a little boy, had a really terrible last couple of years, and he's at the loneliest and lowest point of his life. He is on a stubborn horse who refuses to go anywhere he tells him. He's in the fog. He can't see. All of his friends are gone. All of his plans are failed. And he's spent the last six months of his life seemingly being chased around by lions. They just keep popping up. It's the strangest thing. And uh, as he's sitting there on this horse in the fog, he starts to hear a very large beast next to him. And he notices one of the paws. It's a lion. And uh, this lion, of course, is Aslan, and which in these, uh, which these stories represents Jesus. And uh, he says the most interesting thing to this boy. He says, tell me your sorrows. He invites him to pour out his heart. And this morning, wherever you are, wherever your heart is, whether it's you feel like you're suffering well or you're a mess as you struggle, that's what Jesus says. Tell me your sorrows. But the most interesting thing about that story uh, is that after Shasta tells him his sorrows, and about all of the lions. He just keeps talking about the lions. They've clearly, he's clearly got some PTSD about the lions. Uh, Aslan looks at him and he says, in fact, the entire time, I was the lion. Um, from Aslan's perspective, Shasta's entire story, all of his circumstances, they were about bringing him to a place of blessing. As the story ends, we see that. But we see something a little bit similar in uh, the letters to Smyrna and Pergamum. We don't just see that Jesus sees them. We see what Jesus sees in them. We see Jesus' perspective on the sufferings of his church and their circumstances. We see five perspectives here. I'll walk through them briefly. First, see that your poverties are your riches. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. This church that hasn't eaten in a couple of days, whose clothing are rags, Jesus says, the truth about you is that you're rich, that you're wealthy, that you have plenty. And uh, what, uh, what could these riches be? Uh, they could be experiencing 
the joy of Jesus in suffering, that joy unspeakable that Peter talks about. I think you guys maybe have experienced that if you can be joyful when you're struggling, that's a treasure. Uh, these could be riches in heaven. And the Bible says that if you're faithful in this life, especially in suffering, that God, God lays up for you tangible riches in heaven. Um, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, when I am weak, I am strong. The principle here is when you experience lack because of Jesus, whether that lack is physical, emotional, seemingly spiritual, when you experience lack because of Jesus, you actually gain riches, whether you can see him or not. If you're lonely, stay faithful in your loneliness, and the richest fellowship imaginable will be <coughs> yours. You weary, tired, kind of feeling that life's a treadmill, stay faithful and rest like anything you can imagine will be yours. See that your poverties are your riches. Second, see that your afflictions are tests. Notice uh, in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Um, what is the purpose of a test? Tests are not designed to punish. In fact, in the scriptures, tests are designed to prove the worthiness of the one tested. First Peter says of suffering that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. What Jesus is doing in giving you trials and suffering is that he is lifting your life up on display for others to see. That's what he's doing. If you read the book of Job, Job is probably the person who suffered most in the entire Bible. Okay? He loses all of his children and possessions in a day. He gets a horrible physical sickness, all right? But if you read in Job 1, what's the reason that all these terrible things happen to Job? It's because God is so pleased with him that he wants to display his life in a trophy case. That's the reason why. God is like a dad who loves to see his kids succeed. Not in that weird, like, I want to vicariously live through my children way, but like that natural good delight that a parent has in their children doing well. That is the truth about your depression or your coworker slandering you, about your sickness or injury or addiction. God is giving you trials to display the glory of your faith. He's putting your life on display. Third, see that death is your path to life. Again, in verse 10, the very end, be faithful unto death, and I will give you crown of life. Notice the title Jesus gives himself as he speaks to the church in Smyrna in verse 8. He's the one who died and came to life. One of the, uh, one of the strangest perspectives in Christianity is that the thing most of us fear the most, death, right, is actually the pathway to life. Now, by now, if you don't know that I'm reading C.S. Lewis this year, you probably are new this Sunday. I cannot stop quoting him. It's just so good. I just keep reading. It's great. Uh, there's this book called The, uh, the Screwtape Letters. 
and it's about a senior demon trying to teach a junior demon how to tempt someone. And uh, this guy's a Christian, and this, the, the junior demon is trying to tempt the guy to renounce his faith. Anyways, last letter of the book, the guy dies horrifically in a battle. I think a shell blows his body to smithereens, okay? And uh, here is what the senior demon says. I want you all to hear this. The, one, the, the more someone thinks about it, the worse it becomes. He got through so easily. No gradual misgivings as life went on, no doctor's sentence, no nursing home, no operating room, no false hopes of life. Sheer instantaneous liberation. One moment it seemed to be all our world, the world of demons, right? The scream of bombs, the fall of houses, the stink and taste of high explosive on your lips, feet burning with weariness, brain reeling, legs aching. Next moment, all this was gone, gone like a bad dream, never again to be of any account. Did you mark how naturally, as if he'd been born for it, the earth-born vermin entered the new life? How all his doubts became in the twinkling of an eye ridiculous? And then he saw him, this animal, this thing begotten in a bed, could look on him. What is blinding, suffocating fire to you is now cool light to him. It is clarity itself, and it wears the form of a man. That's, that's the risen Christ. Last part. All the delights of sense or heart or intellect with which you could have once tempted him, even the delights of virtue itself, now seem to him in comparison, but as the half-nauseous attractions of a prostitute would seem to a man who hears that his true beloved, whom he's loved all of his life, and whom he had believed to be dead, is alive and even now at his door. That is the Bible's perspective, in kind of a twisted way, on what happens when you die. You are freed, right? You are brought into the presence of Jesus, full of life and joy forevermore. That's what death is if you're a Christian. It's entering into life. There's nothing to fear. And I would just add to that, every little death we experience on the way to that day, right? All the little aches and pains, the gradual having to give your life away, just make that day of release even better. Fourth, see that your enemies and your culture are satanic. This is probably the strangest perspective to our Western ears. Notice uh, the people persecuting Christians in verse 9 are a synagogue of Satan. They are servants and worshipers of Satan, whether they know it or not. Um, in Pergamum, why is everything so bad? Because Satan's throne dwells there. Just very briefly, okay, some of us walk around like we are surprised that many Americans are gradually growing openly opposed to Christianity, that they're scoffing and mocking and hating Christianity. And uh, it seems so strange. The reality is there are supernatural forces of evil at work. There's a reason that every nation eventually opposes Christianity. And I think uh, what's helpful about this perspective, that aspects of our culture and people who, uh, people who persecute Christians, that they are actually servants of the evil one, okay? Um, that helps us expect the need 
for courage. All right? You should expect that living out your Christian life will be opposed, that it will require sacrifice and courage. A Christian is more like a soldier behind enemy lines than a guy living in a city, right? Your life is going to be opposed. You're going to, you're, you're, it's going to require courage for you to live out your faith. All right, finally, last one. Jesus sees that your compromises are deadly. Look at what he says about this false teaching, teaching of Balaam. All right, look at, uh, look at verse 16. Look at what he says. Repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. People who walk in a teaching or in a lifestyle that compromises its Christian life to, to live easier in the culture, that's a deadly thing. That, that will destroy you. Um, so whenever you hear a teaching that kind of lets you off the hook for living or giving generously or that makes you feel not so hardcore about boundaries for purity and sexuality, right? Like whenever you hear that, those things will destroy you. Jesus sees compromising the Christian faith to help you live in the culture easier, that will destroy you. Okay. Jesus sees what we do not see. Like 2 Corinthians says, we see the things that are seen, right? We see the pain. We see the trials. We see the pressure. Jesus sees the things that are unseen. He sees the riches won in a life that's faithful. He sees the death, the gateway to life. He sees that the pressure we feel is actually spiritual evil. So uh, we see that Jesus sees. We see what Jesus sees. Now let's see very briefly uh, what that means for how we live. First, you're suffering now. You're struggling. And you see what Jesus sees about it, right? Be faithful. To the church in Smyrna where many of them are heading towards death. He says, be faithful unto death. I think that's a great uh, little statement for your life, okay? Your death might be tomorrow. It might be 65 years from now, okay? Right? Be faithful. Being faithful just simply means to endure, to keep going, to continue walking. That means when, you, when you've been reading your Bible really hard for a month and nothing seems to happen or change, you keep going. That means when you've been trying to get to know non-Christians, trying to share your faith, and it's not working, you keep going, right? When, you, when you're struggling emotionally and you don't get over it quickly, you keep going. You keep fighting those sins, right? Second, don't fear suffering. Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. I think the interesting thing about this is in countries where Christians are persecuted, right, they, they, they have some legitimate things to fear. Uh, and the things just kind of happen to them, you know? Like, churches in China don't ask for the government to take their pastors to prison, right? It just happens to them. I think in our situation, uh, oftentimes fear keeps us from obedience. It's not like, not, guys, the police are not going to come in here and drag me out of here today. I'm pretty sure. Okay, that's not going to happen, right? We're not living there. However, there are all sorts of situations you're going to find yourself in this week where what it looks like to obey Jesus is to be uncomfortable and to take a risk and to do something that's going to stretch you and might ruin you 
in a big way or little way. And what's often going to happen is fear is going to stop. The fear of suffering, the fear of discomfort is going to stop you. And this passage says, do not fear. I think the saddest thing is most of our fears are in our imaginations, right? You guys have all had that experience where you're like, I should talk to this person about Jesus. I should talk to him. And you're like, no, he's going to kill me. He's going to punch me. And then you're like, uh, da, da, da. And they're like, oh, yeah, I go to church. I'm a Christian, too. You know, you're like, oh, like I'm such an idiot, right? Like most of our fears are in our imaginations. And so I just say, do not fear. And finally, if you have compromised to avoid discomfort, there's an aspect of your Christian life that is not uh, does not reflect the scriptures or the clear teachings of the Bible. If you've compromised, if you have willfully refused to give your possessions generally because you want to have what your, your co-workers have, if you've refused to seek to get to know unbelievers, to give your time sacrificially to them, if you've compromised in your purity, repent. Repentance is, sim- is very simply, it is turning away from sin and joyfully following Jesus in the other direction. Okay, so we, we began our lesson with uh, Adoniram Judson in prison, hung upside down, spiders and scorpions free to crawl on him as much as they wanted to. Here's how the story ends. He eventually is released. He would watch his wife die primarily from the strain of his imprisonment. Uh, He almost went insane afterwards. He spent two months in the jungle, kind of a little crazy over the grief. He would recover. He'd remarry twice. One of his other wives would die. He'd bury a few children. Some would survive. Uh, The last five or six years of his life, he was terribly sick. He died at sea. Uh, without any anesthesia or medicine, and more pain than most of us can imagine. Here, here are some of his last words, okay? How few there are who die so hard. We might add how few there are who lived so hard. But uh, Judson got to see God begin to move in Burma. When he got there, there were no Christians, no scriptures, no written language. By the time he died... There were hundreds of Christians in a growing house church. There was a Burmese Bible written by him and a Burmese language written by him. And churches today in Burma, now Myanmar, can trace their roots back to Judson's life. But more, okay, more than what Judson saw happen in his life. That's really cool. But I want you, as we close this lesson, I want you to consider what Adoniram Judson sees right now about his life on earth. Adoniram Judson's in the presence of Jesus. He sees him, right? His eyes are filled with his glory. Okay? He's, he's in heaven. He's forever freed from death and pain, right? He's died and risen again, right? And he's in heaven, gazing upon God himself, unshakably happy forever. And Judson looks back to hanging upside down in a prison cell, right? What does Judson see now about that moment, right? What does he, what does he see God doing in that moment? probably sees God's glory displayed. He sees rewards won. He sees Christ with him, right? So take what Judson sees now and apply it to your life and live accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, thank you that you're with us. Let's pray this morning you'd comfort the downcast. I pray people would be 
freed to call out to you in their troubles and afflictions. I pray you'd enable us to be faithful, give us the resources we need to walk with you and to serve and love you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.